And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we open our scriptures this morning to study God's Word, let's make sure, well, we've already done that with the Lord's table, haven't we? So we can go ahead and begin. Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. One of the concepts that I think most people in our country are confused about is the concept of forgiveness. So we should not at all be surprised when we come to the church and realize that most Christians have a good deal of confusion when it comes to the concept of forgiveness as well. This is part of the subject that we will look at in our study of John chapter 13 this morning. Since it's been a couple of weeks since we have been here in this passage, I need to take some time for a little review to set the context. Because when we look at the subject of verses 12 through 17... It grows out of the uh, illustration that the, the, the Lord gave through the foot washing in the first 11 verses. The first three verses give us the setting. Just prior to the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the thing that we notice here is that Jesus is completely in control of the circumstances. There are things that are going to happen this particular night at this particular meal that perhaps would indicate that Jesus is caught off guard, caught by surprise. But John wants us to know that Jesus is fully aware. As part of his deity, he is still omniscient. He knows that his hour has come, that it is time for him to go to the cross, and he is fully prepared. There is also a shift that takes place here, as we noted the last time. And that is that up until this point in the Gospel of John, the word love has only been used about three times in a positive context. A couple of times it's used to refer to man's love for, for darkness or, or man's love for the approbation of man. But starting in chapter 13 through chapter 17, love becomes a major focus of our Lord's message to the disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. It is at this time, this from chapter 13 through chapter 17, that we have what is called the Upper Room Discourse. And it is at this time that the Lord begins to teach the disciples church-age doctrine. This foreshadows specific doctrines related to the spiritual life of the church age and what will be revealed later on by the Apostle Paul in the epistles. So this is very crucial to understand this 
And the doctrine that comes to the forefront of these chapters, along with many other doctrines, is the doctrine of impersonal love and how crucial that is to the spiritual life. So everything in these chapters, in a sense, illustrates this principle of impersonal love. And the first thing that he is going to illustrate on the of impersonal love has to do with the doctrines of salvation and the doctrines of forgiveness. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus illustrates this. He, he takes some very, uh, a very strong visual aid in order to communicate a very precise doctrine. We're told in verse 3, Jesus, that's the subject, picks it up from the earlier verse, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from the Father, from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garment. So he takes off a very expensive robe. We know that it was a seamless garment and the Roman soldiers gambled for it later. So he takes off his his robe and he's left with just his undergarments, wraps a towel around himself so that he is now clothed as a servant, as a slave. We know from studying the Mishnah and other documents from this era that a, a rabbi's followers would do anything for the rabbi. They were almost like slaves. They would put themselves in a position to, to uh, uh, buy food for him, to take care of him, to do many, many different menial chores for the, for the rabbi that they were, they were learning from, but they would never take the role of a slave. So when Jesus does this, he is saying something very profound by his actions. So he lays aside his garment, girds himself with his towel, and he begins to pour water into a basin to wash their feet. Now, we have to understand the background here. Before going to any formal dinner, any kind of dinner like this, everyone would have taken a bath. Sort of like going to church on Sunday morning. It's important for everyone to follow proper procedures of good grooming. Take a bath, brush your teeth, put on deodorant and aftershave to make sure you're ready to go. Now, once a year I have to give this message because every now and then there's somebody who just forgets. And so about once a year, I just throw this out to make sure that people understand that, that it's important. It doesn't matter how you dress, but it does matter how you smell. <laughs> so you need to make sure that you come to, come to class at least following the principles of good grooming. Now, they all did that. They were well-groomed. They were clean. They had all taken a bath. And they come to dinner. Now, this is particularly important in this culture because at a formal dinner like this, they would be lying down next to one another. And so uh, one person's feet might be relatively close to the next person's nostrils. So there was an importance of washing the feet, especially when you wore sandals and you were out in the dirty streets of Jerusalem. There, there would be a need to wash the feet. So this is standard operating procedure at a formal dinner like this. But Jesus is really going to turn the tables on this. It's the Passover meal. And after he begins the Passover meal with the initial cup of wine, then instead of getting up and washing his hands, which would be ritual purification before he cut the lamb as the host for the meal, Jesus does something different. Instead of washing his hands... He is going to wrap the towel around. He's going to wash their feet. He pours the water in the basin. And we studied the last time that he began to wash their feet. And he came to Peter. 
And in verse 6, Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. In other words, there is a spiritual point to what I'm doing. I am teaching important doctrines through this visual training aid of foot washing. Now, I made the point the last time that in many, many times when you hear a message on John 13, all that is brought out is, isn't it important to, to serve one another? Now, the doctrine of being a servant to one another in the body of Christ is clearly in the background here, but there's much more here. And if you leave it at that, you have forgotten the thrust of the passage. So we have to look at what Jesus is actually teaching here. It says, what I'm doing now you don't understand. Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. Good old stubborn Peter. And the Lord says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, if you are not cleansed by me, you cannot have a relationship with me. This is our first clue that what he is doing is to illustrate what he is going to do on the next day on the cross. He is giving this visual training aid in preparation for what will take place on the cross the next day. Hold your place here and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is going to teach this same principle, but in a slightly different format. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude, phroneo, have this objective way of thinking, this mental attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our role is to think like Jesus Christ. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mental attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what's going on here? You have to understand a few things in the original language of this passage. It says that he existed in the form of God, and the Greek word here is morphe. M-O-R-P-H-E. Morphe. Now, this is a Greek word from which we get our word, um, well, you talk, kids see some of these shows on TV, they morph, they change. Uh, we get our word morphology, which has to do with the form of a word from, from morphe. And it is, its root meaning is form, but it has a very technical sense in Greek as well. It doesn't, reform, it doesn't refer specifically to the external shape of something, but to its internal essence. Its internal essence. goes back to certain ideas in uh, Platonic thought, although that's not the idea here. But this was a technical word to indicate the, the essence of something. And it was that essence then that, that in Greek thought determined the outside shape of something. So it, the emphasis here is on internal essence. Although he existed... In the inner essence, the inner nature of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that takes us back to what took place in the garden. Remember, 
God had prohibited Adam and Ishah, his wife, from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, Satan came along in the form of a serpent and said, no, 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 you won't, you won't die, but you will become like God. That's, that's why God doesn't want you to eat that. You will become like God. So Eve looked at that, and she thought about it a couple of seconds, and said, that sounds like a pretty good idea to become like God. So she grasped after the fruit. Adam then followed her uh, lead, and he grasped after the fruit. What were they grasping for? They were grasping for deity. They wanted to be like God. In contrast to the failure of the first Adam, who wanted to be like God, Jesus Christ, who was God, did not seek to hold on to His eternal position and glory in the heavens, but instead, verse 7 says, He emptied Himself. Now, the Greek word here is the word kanao. Looks like this, K-E-N-O-O. And this is a very famous word because it refers to what is called the kenosis problem. Now, this is not a very good translation in the American Standard or in the Old King James. And the kenosis problem goes down to a kenosis heresy. And that is that somehow Jesus um, gave up His eternal attributes or His glory or His omni-attributes, His omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence. And that's false. That's the kenosis heresy. Jesus simply voluntarily restricted the independent use of His divine attributes. That's the definition of kenosis. He willingly, voluntarily restricted the independent use of His divine attributes according to the plan of God the Father. If He gave them up, then He would no longer be fully God. He would no longer be undiminished deity. He still was omniscient. We see that at various points that we've studied in in John, that He still, when He came to the woman at the well, He knew of her past marital history. That demonstrates His omniscience. He changed the water into wine. That demonstrates His omnipotence. Not all of the miracles, though some of the miracles Jesus performed, He did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many of them He did in His own omnipotence in order to demonstrate that He was the eternal God of the universe. If you say that He gave up His omni-attributes, not only are you saying that He wasn't fully God when He was incarnate on the earth, but then everything He did is simply as a man. And he has to do these things to demonstrate that he was also fully God, undiminished deity. So he, instead of emptied himself, he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. And then it says, he taking on the form of a bondservant. Now here we have, The same word again, morphe. He takes on the attributes of a servant. The Greek word is doulos. This is the same word that we're going to find in John 13. 
He took on the attributes of a servant to put himself in a role to serve the human race. He took on the form of a bondservant, and then it says, and being made in the likeness of men. And this word is schema. S-C-H-E-M-A. And this refers to the external body, the external appearance. So he was fully man in a material body on the earth. Not the Gnostic idea of just sort of a an appearance, which was called docetism. He just appeared to be physically here, but wasn't real. See, they had a problem with anything material. Material was necessarily evil, so Jesus, according to the Gnostics, Jesus couldn't have had a true physical body. But Paul emphasizes here that he had a true physical body. He was made in the external appearance of a man with a physical body. And being found in appearance as a man, what? He humbled himself. Emphasis on humility here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is illustrating in John chapter 13. So, let's go back to our our passage there. This is the, the background. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So, Peter then says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus makes an important point in verse 10. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. And we saw last time that this word, luo, in the Greek, L-O-U-O, indicates a complete bath or a washing from head to foot, and this is the word used in the Old Testament to describe the consecration of the high priest as he entered into priestly service. It happens one time in the life of the high priest. After that, he no longer is washed from head to foot, but when he goes into the, into the uh, tabernacle, here's the outer courtyard, one entrance, Here's the brazen altar, and then there is the laver. Here's the Holy of Holies. He has to go through the laver, and here he washes his hands and his feet. And in the Greek Septuagint, I noted last time that in the Hebrew, there's only one word for bathing, washing, whatever it is. It's all covered by one word. But the translators, the rabbis who translated the Greek, I mean the the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, understood that there was a difference between a complete bath and the washing of hands and feet. So they used the word luo in Exodus to describe the washing of the high priest at his consecration, and they used the Greek word nipto, N-I-P-T-O, to describe the, just the, cleanse, the washing of the hands and the feet each time he entered into service in the tabernacle or the temple. The reason is that luo represents phase one salvation cleansing, cleansing from sin. Nipto represents phase two confession for all post-salvation sins. Now we see the noun form of luo in Titus 3.5. 
Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. How? How did He save us? By the washing of what? Regeneration. So there we learn that regeneration has a cleansing aspect to it. And that it is this word, this noun, lutron, used there in uh, Titus 3.5, that represents regeneration. Regeneration has two aspects, therefore, and we studied this when we went through John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Regeneration has, first of all, a cleansing function, which wipes out all of our pre-salvation sins, and then it has a the function of the new birth, which is the creation and impartation of the human spirit to the believer. And all of this happens instantaneously. In fact, if you were to take a second, one second in time, that one second in time that it takes for us to express faith alone in Jesus Christ, if we were to take that second and we were to stretch it out and we were to chop it into a thousand segments and then take one of those segments, everything that happens at salvation happens at that one instant, that one one thousandth of a second. And so at that instant we are simultaneously cleansed from all pre-salvation sins And we are given a new human spirit so that we are born again. And then the third thing that happens is that God's very own eternal life is imputed to that human spirit. So that at that point we have new life and that can never be lost. It can never be taken away. So that that cleansing, we see that this word, katharos, in the Greek, is used, K-A. T-H-A-R-O-S is used of phase one salvation and of phase two salvation. Let me put this up, put the chart up here on the board. We remember that salvation has three phases. Phase one is when we are... First, trust Christ alone for our salvation. We are justified by faith alone. We are regenerate. And at that point, we enter into the Christian life. This takes place in an instant in time. Then we have phase two salvation, which is the process of spiritual growth, spiritual life, known as sanctification. And then phase three is salvation from the presence of sin, glorification, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Now, there is a cleansing that is associated with phase one salvation, and there is a forgiveness that is associated with phase one salvation that are permanent and eternal and are the basis for the cleansing and the forgiveness that takes place in phase two salvation. So, we can come along then and we can say there, is, there are three stages to salvation. Salvation one, salvation two, and salvation three. And just as there, is, there are three stages to salvation, because there is no sin in phase three, we have a forgiveness at phase one, which covers all pre-salvation sins. And then there is forgiveness at phase two salvation, which covers all post-salvation sins. And this takes place when we 
utilize 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins, and God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, katharizo, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. He says, he who has bathed, that is, experienced phase one salvation and phase one forgiveness, is completely clean. Halos, the Greek word, holy clean. Katharos, that word is used to describe the complete cleansing that takes place at phase one salvation. So they are cleansed at that point. And then he says, and you, plural, you all, talking to the, the uh, disciples that are there, you all are clean, but not all of you. But not all, plural, indicating there, there is someone there. See, the clean here refers to phase one. There is someone there who is not clean. Katharos, phase one salvation. And then to make sure we understand what Paul, I mean, what John is talking about, uh, John, I mean, what Jesus is talking about, John comes in with an editorial explanation in verse 11. For, Greek word gar, which is causal here, because he knew the one who was betraying him. So there's the connection between the one who is uh, betraying him and the one who is not clean. For this reason, he said, he repeats it, not all of you all, someone is not clean. Not all of you are clean. Now we saw this refers to the fact that Judas Iscariot is not one of the saved. He makes it clear. Then we come to verse 12, and this is where we find ourselves this morning, understanding the implications for the spiritual life of what Jesus did in foot washing. Now, there are some denominations, maybe some of you are familiar with them, who, who believe that there are three ordinances for the church age. Ordinance number one is baptism, believer's baptism. Ordinance number two is the Lord's table, as we celebrated this morning. Ordinance number three is foot washing. And they do that. They will have, and I understand, rather large churches and they will come in and actually wash one another's feet on a monthly basis prior to the Lord's table. They have completely misunderstood and misapplied what is going on in John chapter 13. What is taking place is a visual aid of Jesus Christ's work on the cross of paying the penalty of salvation. He is demonstrating that as a servant, he is going to go to the cross and he is going to wash away the sins of the world. That is the image here. He is showing them by actions what he is going to do on the next day. That it is his work on the cross, that it is by virtue of his work as a servant, that he will forgive the sins of the human race. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined, he put his robe back on, reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now we get the teaching point. We've seen the illustration, we've understood the Old Testament background, we've understood the significance of the terminology used. 
And now we can understand his application. He says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Didaskalos and Kurios. These are the two titles. There's something interesting here. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, notice, the order is reversed in verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. There's a couple of interesting observations we have to make here. First of all, our our Lord is making use of a figure of speech known as a chiasm. The Latin term was chiasmas, but it's a chiasm in English. The chiasm is based on the Greek letter key, which is an X shape. And what you have is uh, like A, B, A. You'll have a term A, then you'll have a second term, which is called B, and then you'll, excuse me, B, and then you'll have B prime repeated, and then you'll come back to A. And that's exactly the order we have here. He says, first you call me teacher, and then Lord, and you are right because I am Lord and teacher. So we have teacher is A, Lord is B, the second term. Then you have Lord repeated again, so that's B prime. And then you have teacher, and that is A prime. Now when you utilize this type of figure of speech... What you are doing is setting up a frame and a picture. The frame is designed to focus attention on the picture. If you go to a museum and you see beautiful works of art framed in a frame that completely detracts and overrides the picture, then you're paying attention to the frame and not the picture. You're not focusing on what you're supposed to focus on. The frame is designed to focus your attention on the picture. And the term teacher... In a chiasm, the external terms frame the, the, what the emphasis is on. And the emphasis in the chiasm is on the B prime terms, your central terms, which is Lord. Jesus is emphasizing His deity here. Not simply his, the fact that He is a teacher, while that's true. He is emphasizing the fact that I am the eternal God of the universe. I am the creator of everything, and I am the sovereign of the universe, and I am the one who who has humbled himself to being a servant in order to solve the greatest problem the human race will ever face. So the point here is that if the Lord of the universe is willing to become a servant in order to execute forgiveness, then those who are creatures should also be servants and forgive one another. See, it's not simply being a servant. That misses the whole point of the passage. It is being a servant in a particular way. And that way is forgiving 
one another. This is an expression of impersonal love. Now let me explain what I mean by that word because I know there are some people who who react to that, that impersonal love, well, what does it mean to be have impersonal love? That sounds cold and rationalistic and dead. Let me explain. When you say, I love you, to somebody you know, somebody you appreciate, somebody who's attractive and kind and wonderful and you really enjoy being with, what you are saying is that there are certain characteristics and attributes about you which I not only like, but I enjoy to a tremendous degree. And I love you because you have these attributes and I know you and I have a personal relationship with you. I have personal knowledge of you. I know who you are. I know what you're like. I know your attributes. I know your characteristics. And so the emphasis on the object of love and the attributes there and there is personal knowledge involved. However... When God loves us, and there is a personal attraction, a personal attraction. When God says to the human race as a whole, I love you, God is perfect righteousness and man is minus R. He lacks perfect righteousness. He falls short of the glory of God. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. And so when God says, I love you, it is not based on attraction. It is not based on a personal affinity, because there is none. It is not based on God's knowledge, appreciation, attraction to the object. It is based totally and exclusively on God's perfect character and on His steadfast love. It is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, the Lord then tells us that we are and we'll get into this in much more detail, this is simply introductory, that we are to love one another in the same way that God loved us. One another includes all believers, but we can't have this kind of love for every believer. For one thing, we're limited in our knowledge, so we can't know every believer. We can't come to know them. We may, In fact, their personality may be such that we really don't appreciate them at all. They may not be physically attractive to us. They may not be attractive to us in terms of their personality. We may have absolutely nothing in common. We may disagree on many points and have opinions that differ. Yet we are to love one another. We may not even know that person very well. So therefore, there's no personal relationship. They're just another believer. And we are to love them in the same way that God loved us. So this is why it is called impersonal love, because there doesn't even need to be a personal relationship there. Impersonal love is based not on who and what we are, but on who God is and what Jesus Christ did for us. That's always the pattern. That's the pattern that we see here. Forgiveness is part of this. Forgiveness is a rejection of all animosity... Hostility, revenge and revenge motivation, anger, and the whole realm of mental attitude sins towards somebody who perhaps has wronged us. It is the absence of that and it's giving up all of those mental attitude sins towards that person. We'll we'll get into a detailed study in a minute. 
Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, in other words, if I then, the Lord of the universe, washed your feet, i.e. forgave your sins, you also ought to forgive one another's sins. Why? Because of who and what Jesus Christ is and what He did. That's the model, that's the pattern. See, sometimes we don't feel like executing impersonal love towards other people. We don't like them. We're not in a good mood. Maybe we're not very mature. But the Lord says we're to follow His example. We're to do it because of who He is and what He has done for us. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And then He drives the point home in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, point of doctrine, Amen, Amen. We've seen this many times in the Gospel of John so far that when Jesus wants to emphasize a point of doctrine, boldface it, put it in uppercase letters and underline it, get to get our attention, he says, I say to you, a slave, a doulos, the same word we saw translated servant over in Philippians chapter 2, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And here he uses the word, when he uses the word sent, the word is apostello. A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. The noun form of apostello is apostolos. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He is saying, you are not greater than the one who sends you. If I am the Lord of the universe and I am going to forgive your sins, then you as my representatives need to forgive one another. And by extension and application, that goes to every believer throughout the church age. Now this brings up the whole point of forgiveness. Forgiveness, as I said in the introduction, is one of those concepts that is often misunderstood. We have to draw a distinction, I think, between two categories. One is legal, and the other is personal. Forgiveness is a term related to personal relationships. The term justification is our forensic term. Because of justification, the laying of the legal foundation for our relationship with the Lord through the possession of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, God then is able to forgive us. The reason I make that point is that we all saw the tragic things that took place this last year in relationship to the presidency and the things that were done. and you all, I used to get so bilious when I would see people interviewed on the news and say, why don't we just let it all go away and forgive him? And it just revealed the fact that people don't understand that forgiveness is not a legal concept. You can go through the whole code of jurisprudence in the United States and you don't find the concept of forgiveness. You find the concept of pardon and clemency And you find other terms, but those are legal terms. Forgiveness is not a legal term. If somebody commits murder, if they kill, if someone near and dear to me is murdered, 
I can forgive the person an absence of mental attitude, sin, animosity, revenge, motivation, hatred, anger, all of those things. I forgive them. I let that go. I don't hold it against them. Yet, nevertheless, I can be consistent with that and still push for justice under the law that they are a criminal, they broke the law, and they need to be uh, tried to the full extent of the law and, and punished accordingly. Justice is different from forgiveness. Now, in salvation, justice and justification lays the foundation for the relational forgiveness between man and God. So this just introduces the importance of the issue. Forgiveness is a foundational concept in the Old Testament, in the Proverbs. Proverbs 19.11 says that a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. That's forgiveness. Proverbs 24.17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart, that is your mental attitude, be rejoice when he stumbles. Proverbs 24.29, Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. That's revenge motivation. I will render to the man according to his work. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, the purpose of that imagery, heaping burning coals on the head, goes back to the practice that if a neighbor were to run short of of fire in the home, coals to heat the house, and he would go to the next door neighbor, and if this guy, even if he was your enemy, still give him coals. And the way they would carry them was they would put them in in a container and then carry them on the head. So what this is saying is not an idea of creating pain in the person's life by executing kindness to them. It is simply using this as a metaphor that if you are, if you feed them when they're hungry, if you give them water to drink when they're thirsty, then that is the same as being kind to the neighbor next to you. What did Jesus say? That you are to love your neighbor as yourself. It's that same imagery that runs all the way through the Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, the basic concept of impersonal love, that we are to treat others in the same way that we would be treated. Now, we come to the doctrine of forgiveness, and we'll start off with point number one, introducing the problem, and that is already covered in the difference between the legal concept of justification and the personal concept of forgiveness that God is able to forgive us our sins and wipe the slate clean because, first of all, it was taken care of on the cross where Christ paid the penalty. There is no divine forgiveness apart from the payment of a penalty and a recognition of sin. Point number two, definitions. In the Hebrew, there are two words that are translated forgiveness and they emphasize different aspects. The first is the word nasa. Nasa, N-A-S-A, which means to take away, to lift off, to carry away, and by implication it means to take away guilt, to take away iniquity, to take away transgression, and so it came to mean forgiveness. But this forgiveness is emphasizes phase one 
forgiveness, which is the lifting off or carrying away of sin. It often relates not to forgiveness in the sense of fellowship with the Lord, but the initial act of forgiveness taking away the, the burden, the guilt, the iniquity of the sin. This is the word used in Psalm 25:18. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. It is not talking about a relationship as much as it's talking about that legal removal. But unfortunately in English it's difficult to find the right words to make these distinctions. Psalm 32.1 How blessed is he whose transgression is lifted off of him. Literally, not just forgiven, but lifted off. Whose sin is covered, kafar, atonement. See, it's emphasizing that that objective judicial work of Christ on the cross. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and thou didst lift off the guilt of my sin. It's emphasizing that penalty payment aspect. Now, the pardoning, the relational aspect of this is emphasized by the, word, the, Greek, or the Hebrew word salah. Looks like this. S-A-L-A-C-H. And this is a technical term for the pardon to a sin or a, a sinner, where that consequence may be lifted off or ameliorated, but that there is a restoration of fellowship. So, Nasat indicates the lifting off of the guilt, which relates to the payment of the penalty, and Salak in- emphasizes the restoration of the relationship in terms of fellowship. In the New Testament, there are two other words used. There is the word afiemi, which is the word normally used for forgiveness. This is the word used in 1 John 1.9. It means to let go. It means to send away. In a couple of passages, it's used in reference to a divorce. It means to cancel it means to remit. It means to pardon a loan or to forgive debts. It is used for forgiveness in the New Testament and it indicates um, pardon and a remission of penalty. In Colossians 3.13, another word is used, and that is this word, charizomai. C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I, which is normally translated to freely give, and it emphasizes the grace aspect of forgiveness. It's not something earned, or deserved, it is something that is freely given on the basis of the penalty Christ paid on the cross. Now, when we come to English, we get a little clarification. According to Webster's Dictionary, forgiveness has several meanings. The first is to give up resentment, resentment of or claim to requital. To give up resentment or claim to requital. Now, that means that you're going to give up 
mental attitude sins toward a person who has offended you. So when it comes to forgiveness, it doesn't mean, as so many people think, the idea of absolution from consequences. Forgiveness does not necessarily, it may include that. It does sometimes in the believer's life. When we commit some sin, sometimes the Lord, when, when He forgives us, He decides out of His grace to remove any divine discipline that goes with it. Sometimes He just decreases the divine discipline. Sometimes the divine discipline stays at the same intensity. But forgiveness has nothing, is a separate issue from the consequences. So you can forgive someone, yet they still have to suffer the consequences of their actions. If a person kills someone else, they can be forgiven completely by God, and yet the consequences are the same. They still go to the, should go, to the electric chair, gas chamber, or whatever the form of capital punishment is. But God sometimes remits that. He did that with David. David committed two sins that were liable for capital punishment under the Mosaic Law. He committed adultery and he conspired to commit murder. And as a result of that, he should have been executed. But God remitted that and he went through another form of divine discipline, took four stages, and it was quite miserable upon David for the rest of his life. So forgiveness, in in terms of an English definition, means to give up resentment or claim to requital. Sometimes it means to grant relief from payment. The second meaning listed in the dictionary is to cease to feel resentment against an offender. So see, forgiveness affects you as the person offended. It's your mental attitude. When you go through a situation where somebody offends you or somebody harms you and you give in to jealousy or to anger or to bitterness or to hostility or revenge motivation, whatever it might be, and you give in to that, that destroys you. It doesn't do anything to them. It, is, it destroys your soul and destroys your spiritual life and impacts that. So forgiveness means that you let that go. You do not, you renounce all anger or resentment against that person. Now, point number three in, in this intro to forgiveness is that there are two kinds of forgiveness in the Scripture that we must distinguish. Forgiveness one, which relates to phase one salvation, and F2, forgiveness two, which relates to phase two salvation. And this is important to understand a couple of crucial passages which we find in the New Testament. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, as we have already seen, forgiveness has to do with relationship. Redemption is different. Redemption means the payment of a price. The payment of a price is an objective reality. It's a judicial payment. 
Forgiveness is the application of that. Now, in this passage, we have redemption, the payment of the penalty for sin, the forgiveness. This is a second category. Some people want to interpret the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, as an appositional phrase that is synonymous with redemption. Where they go with that is that since Christ died on the cross for your sins and paid the penalty, you're forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future, so you don't need to confess your sins. You don't need to worry about sins. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to worry about the mandates and prohibitions in the New Testament. You can just do whatever you want to do because you're already forgiven. And that is a complete distortion of the text. That's trying to make forgiveness synonymous to redemption. And they're distinct. Redemption emphasizes payment. Forgiveness emphasizes a relationship and the restoration of fellowship. And that restoration of fellowship is based on payment. Now, redemption deals with all pre-salvation sins. So at the cross... And redemption also pays for all post-salvation sins. So redemption lays the groundwork, the foundation for our salvation. It can never be lost. However, as we go through the spiritual life, we continue to commit sins. That's why the priest had to wash their feet, wash their hands. They went places and they did things that were sinful. So this emphasizes the fact that you still commit sins... Any sin violates the righteousness of God, and as we go through life, we commit sins, but there is a perfect solution, and that is confession. And in the act of confession, we are in essence reflecting upon what took place on the cross, that the penalty was paid for. We are in essence saying, Lord, I committed this act which was paid for by Christ on the cross, and we are admitting that, and as a result of that confession, the Lord reapplies that cleansing, katharizo, and we are cleansed from those sins, and our sin is separated from us, as Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, and God says, I will remember that sin no more. At this point, it affects our ongoing relationship with the Lord in terms of fellowship, but not in terms of our position in the family. So that is, we have F1 salvation, which takes place at the point of justification. And that takes place of all pre-salvation sins. And then as a result of 1 John 1, 9, all post-salvation sins are forgiven. And that is for restoration to fellowship and the forgiveness of the Holy Spirit. Now that, because God does that, For us, in our relationship to Him, He says, we are to do the same thing in our relationship to one another. We are not to hold grudges with one another. We're not to get involved in bitterness toward one another, jealousy toward one another, anger, hostility. The only person you hurt when you get involved in vindictiveness and anger, hostility, bitterness towards other people is your own spiritual life. The model, the pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ who left his position in heaven, who voluntarily restricted himself, took on the form of a servant. And if the Lord of the universe did that for us, 
then we are to do that for other believers and never hold anything against someone else because we all have the same sin nature. We're all prone to the same sins and they may, we may be expecting them to forgive us tomorrow for what we may be unwilling to forgive them of today. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ that he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That we have eternal forgiveness, but that in time we also have a simple procedure for realizing a restoration of fellowship and restoration of our relationship with you, and that is through 1 John 1, nine. Father, we thank you for the salvation we have, and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is without hope, without faith, without a certainty of their eternal life, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is for them to say in the privacy of their own soul, in a prayer forming words and thought alone, Father, I trust Christ alone for my salvation. There is salvation in no other name, the Scripture says. He paid the penalty in full. It's not by any works that we do, but by His work on the cross, where He paid the penalty in full. Father, we pray that You would help us to remember these things that we are learning about impersonal love and forgiving one another. And pray that You would challenge us with these things, that we may apply this principle in our day-to-day spiritual life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.